That's right. We are in part two today of our series, Things Jesus Never Said. I am fired up. I came prepared to preach today. I hope you came prepared to receive from God. We are going to be studying today from the book of John chapter 8. John chapter 8, there's a story of a woman caught in adultery, and it's going to be powerful. It's going to encourage you today, so you can go ahead and turn there and be ready as we study from this story today. Uh, We are in a series called Things Jesus Never Said. Uh, You might be here this morning, uh, might be new to this church or just new to church in general or maybe just new to this series and wonder why would we take time on Sunday morning to talk about the stuff Jesus never said. We we only get a small amount of time every week to talk about the stuff Jesus did say. Why are we talking about the things he didn't say? Well, I believe that the things Jesus said, in fact, all of the word of God, but specifically the things Jesus said, have incredible potential to transform your life. I think they're the most important things ever said, the most important things ever written. I believe that what the apostle Peter voiced to Jesus is absolutely true. Peter said, you have the words of eternal life. I believe that to be the case. And so I think Jesus' words have the power to completely alter your future. To completely change the course of your life in a powerful way. So why talk about what he didn't say? Well, the reality is, as Christians, oftentimes we get real familiar with the stuff that's in here. Man, we've been going to church for years, decades. We've been studying God's word for years, decades. And if we're not careful, we can get too familiar with it to where we miss out on the transformational impact of what he has to say. And so if we look at it from the reverse perspective, what did he not say? I believe it can shed some new light on the power and the impact of what he did say. And so today, in part two of our series, Things Jesus Never Said, we're going to talk about go do what makes you happy. Go do what makes you happy. These are hashtag things Jesus never said. Now, the reality is every one of us in this room wants to be happy, right? It's human nature. It's a natural response. No one in here would say, I want to be miserable. Now, you might know some people who sometimes act like they want to be miserable. Uh, You wonder how they can find the misery in what should be a happy moment. But even that person deep down inside has a desire for happiness. Maybe they're just so messed up and so broken that they find happiness in acting miserable. But there's a desire in each of us to be happy. I believe that's ultimately a God-given desire. He designed us. He made us. And so it's not wrong to want to be happy. Uh, But we're going to see what Jesus had to say about this. Here are, as we begin, some things Jesus didn't say on the topic of happiness. Jesus never said, go into all the world and preach whatever makes you happy happy. Jesus never said that, did he? He said some other things about going into all the world. He didn't say that. Jesus didn't say, whoever wants to be my disciples must affirm themselves, avoid the cross, and follow their heart. Ooh, follow your heart is such a deceptive lie in our culture. Jesus never said, and this one's my favorite, ask and it will be given to you because God is your celestial sugar daddy, right? Jesus... He never said that. Uh, 
These are things he never said. That's right, blasphemy. We understand these are things he didn't say, right? In John chapter 8, Jesus gives us a relatively long story that has incredible power and application to every single one of us today. At the end of this story, not the end of the message, but the end of the story, we're going to go back and see some things that Jesus never said, and I believe it's going to help you understand the impact of what he did say in this occasion. We're going to start today in verse Number two, and work our way through this story. It says this. It says, at dawn, he, he being Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. So this is not a private moment. This is a public moment. There is a crowd who has gathered. And Jesus sat down to teach them as Jesus was prone to do. It says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these are the people who are very outwardly religious, outwardly good and righteous. In fact, they took their outward reputation very seriously. But if you read the New Testament, you discover they walked in a lot of hypocrisy. They were outwardly good, but inwardly their heart was far from God. They were very prideful. They were very self righteous rather than walking in the righteousness of God. And so these Pharisees and teachers of the law brought, uh, came to Jesus and they brought in a woman caught in adultery. They brought in a woman caught in adultery. If we had more time to talk about this, we could unpack a couple of things here that, that, that are important to at least very quickly address. First of all, where's the man? Caught in adultery, Right? Right. <laughs> They brought in the woman caught in adultery. The reality is this culture 2,000 years ago, many cultures throughout history, had a much higher standard for female purity than male purity. Oftentimes like our culture today. And so his sin was not addressed, but her sin was. And so they brought in this woman caught in adultery. That's the first thing. If we had more time, we'd talk more in depth about. The second thing is this. What were you doing that you caught her in adultery? Right? Uh, what, ha, how did this catching actually take place? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But there's some things to consider here. So they bring in this woman caught in adultery. Caught in the act. We don't know, but we can infer she probably, if she was caught in the act of adultery, is barely clothed at this moment. Completely exposed, massively humiliated, and not just humiliated and shamed, now she is going to actually fear for her life. What we discover in the story is that these men didn't actually care about her sin. They were simply using her sin to try to get at Jesus. And we'll see this a little bit later in the story. But understand this. They are willing to completely destroy this woman's reputation, destroy her, her mental health, completely devastate her, expose her, not just in front of Jesus. But remember, there's a whole crowd who has gathered just to make a point towards Jesus. Watch what happens. It says, they made her stand before the group, barely clothed, and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. That's taking large rocks 
and throwing them at her until her brain damage, her internal organs have been so devastated that she dies or bleeds to death. Not just capital punishment, but brutal capital punishment. Incredibly painful, incredibly devastating. The law commands us to stone such women. What do you say? you say about this Jesus verse 6 tells us their motives they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus what is going on here they're trying to put Jesus in a no-win situation according to the law of Moses which is the first five books of the Bible this woman was guilty adultery was a capital offense you would be put to death for adultery. Now, it was not just a capital offense for a female. It was a capital offense for anyone. So we see a miscarriage of justice already here. But they are asking Jesus, hey, what do you, what do you think about the law? What are they trying to do? They're trying to expose Jesus. Because if Jesus says, yes, that's what the law says, put her to death, then they've trapped him. And they say, well, you, you were supposed to be this compassionate One, you were supposed to be this one who came and loves people, but you're just like us. Not only is he doing that, but now he's empowering the Pharisees to go out and continue carrying out their vigilante justice, their self-righteousness. And so if he says do it, then, then he's helped their desire. On the other hand, if he says don't, if he says no, we're going to make an exception in this case. Now he can't really be the Messiah because he doesn't believe the law. Because he's violated what God's word says. Jesus doesn't have a high enough standard of righteousness to live up to the law. And so they've proven him wrong either way. It's a catch-22. They think, man, you, you can just imagine somebody, they're, they're in some secret meeting somewhere. And somebody raises, what if we do this? Right? What, what, what if we use this question? And, and you can just imagine like the group, yes, yes, this is it. We finally got him. We're finally shutting him down. Why did they hate Jesus so much? They were jealous of Jesus's popularity. There were crowds gathering around to hear Jesus speak. There were crowds gathering around the Pharisees to hear them teach. Uh, And so even though he was the Messiah, they were the ones who were supposed to be most capable of recognizing the Messiah. They missed him completely because they were focused on themselves, not on what God actually was doing. Let's go back to verse 6. It says in verse 6, in the law of Moses, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. My favorite for a couple reasons. Number one, it's the only place in Scripture that we see Jesus writing. If it was not for this verse, there would be people who would suggest that Jesus might not have been literate. Because we don't ever see Jesus writing. Now we see Jesus studying scripture and teaching from scripture. So I think that would be a little bit of a stretch. But this is confirmation that Jesus could write. That Jesus did write. Far more important from that is what did he write? Now there's some later manuscripts. And, and when it comes to biblical text, we're always going to go back to the earliest manuscripts for what's most accurate. And so the, the reality is people like to come along after Scripture is written and add some stuff to it. And sometimes those may not even be malicious things. It might be somebody writing kind of some commentary, kind of a parent, parenthetical statement like, hey, here's what I think happened. And it just over time got copied and passed and, and added into Scripture. So we always want to go with the oldest manuscripts. Well, the oldest manuscripts don't include this. The new, some of the newer manuscripts do. But it suggests that Jesus was actually writing down their sins. Now, what Jesus was writing was their sins, and even though the earliest manuscripts don't say that, I actually think it's probably the case 
And here's why. The Greek word for right here um, is not graphene. Graphene is the most common word for write. It just means to, to write something. But he didn't use the word graphene here, which means to write down. He actually used the word catagraphene here. And kata is a prefix which means against. And so Jesus wrote down something against the Pharisees. So Jesus didn't just like stoop down and write love wins, right? Jesus, Jesus didn't just stoop down and write some, some happy phrase that says, hey, this isn't that big of a deal. He, he sits down and he stoops down and he writes something against the Pharisees. You can imagine he scans this group of Pharisees and, and he picks one out. We'll call him Phil. So he, he sees Pharisee Phil and he says, okay, Pharisee Phil. And he writes down, this is, this is Phil's secret sin. Stuff nobody knows about. Nobody's aware of. Only God knows that Phil's been dealing with this. And then he looks around. He's like, okay, who's next? Who else wants some? And, and he picks Pharisee Paul, right? And, and he writes against Pharisee Paul. And he goes, starts going down through the list and exposing the stuff that's in them, doing exactly to them what they're doing to this woman. And what happens? They didn't like it, Right? Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground at this verse 9, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Phil went first, right? The oldest one's first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. We don't know if he went through the whole list of Pharisees, if he made it that far, or if Man, some of them who didn't get exposed yet were like, nope, I'm good. I'm going to get out of here before my list gets put on blast. But they begin to walk away. What did Jesus do? Jesus flipped the question on his head. He doesn't violate scripture. He says, yeah, let, let, let's, let's inflict justice. Man, if that's what the Bible says, that's what the law says, let's do it. But let's make sure we're doing it from the right place. And that's if you don't have any sin, then you go first. And so Jesus extends grace while upholding standards. The temptation in our culture is to choose one or the other. I'm either choosing truth or I'm choosing grace. I'm either going to be a Pharisee and uphold the truth and the law and stand on this, or everything goes. Everything's okay because Jesus was love. But that's not who Jesus was. Jesus did not see grace and truth as opposed. He fulfilled them both completely. It's the God that we serve. He stood for truth, but he also stood for grace. Here's what I love so much in this story. Verse 10, he straightened up and he asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Verse 11, no one, sir, she said. And then look at Jesus' response. Here's what I didn't see in this story. Jesus says "Then neither... Do I condemn you? I always thought in this story, when Jesus said, let he who's without sin cast the first stone, he was immediately disqualifying everybody there from casting a stone. But he wasn't. There was one person there who had the right to execute biblical justice. Everybody walked away except Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. 
The one who's without sin, the one who is without even the desire to sin, looks at the sinner, at the broken one, at the failed one, at the exposed, humiliated, adulteress, and he says, I don't condemn you either. I serve a God. I have a Savior who has the right to inflict biblical justice on me. There is one who has that right. And he's the one who chooses not to. Woo! I always looked at this from the Pharisees not having the right to do it. But I have a God who does have the right, but he loves me enough not to. That's powerful for somebody today. For somebody in shame today, for somebody who's, who's under conviction today, under condemnation today, you need to know Jesus does not stand here and condemn you today. City Church does not stand here and condemn you today. There's a sign in the lobby that says you are free to struggle here. Why? Because we believe in a God of grace who loves us even though he has the right to inflict justice on Pharisees walk away. Jesus does not. And he looks at her with love. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, the danger is we stop the story right there. And we walk out of here and we're fired up. I got a God of grace. I got a God who loves me. I got a God who, who doesn't inflict justice on me. And all of those things are true. It's just not complete. So let's make sure we read the whole story. It says, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and do whatever makes you happy. Neither do I condemn you. Go now, follow your heart. Neither do I condemn you. Don't let any of these old dudes shame you for what you do with your body. You stay sex positive. Neither do I condemn you. It doesn't matter what you do. I got your back, boo-boo. <laughs> Hashtag things Jesus never said. It's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't accept her sin and say it's okay. He accepted her as a sinner and said, I have a better way. What did he say? He said, go now and leave your life of sin. I haven't condemned you. I haven't inflicted justice on you because I love you, because I believe there's something in you that is better, but I need you to go now. He gives an urgency, not when you get around to it, not when you and this guy inevitably break up because it never works, when you start a relationship, found a bad foundation. He doesn't say those things. He says, go now, now, and leave your life of sin. You see, sin promises for us satisfaction at the cost of disobeying God and eventual pain to you. Why do we get caught up in sin? Because it sounds good, right? Why do we sin? Because it feels good. How many can identify with that? Nobody raising their hand in church. I don't like sin. No. <laughs> Liars, <laughs> right? We all, we all got real holy there for a second. Not me, no. 
I don't see it. I don't know. You're talking about somebody else, right? Feels weird to raise your hand at that, but it's the truth. So the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. It feels good for a moment, sometimes for longer than a moment. Sin has an allure. It promises something that it doesn't deliver, but it does deliver some enjoyment. It does deliver some pleasure. It does deliver temporary satisfaction, but it will never deliver ultimate lasting satisfaction. Sin always sounds fun. What was this woman's story? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us who she was or where she came from. There's a lot of theories out there, but let's, let's modernize her story for a minute. Let's imagine that this woman was, was married. We don't even know. She may have been sleeping with a man who was married, but just for the sake of the hypothetical, let's imagine that she was married, and she was in a, a marriage that started to fade. The fire started to go out. Maybe her, her husband was inattentive. Maybe he took her for granted. Maybe he was verbally abusive or even worse. We don't know. But she, she goes to work, and this new guy starts working there, and he's a nice guy. He's giving her attention. He starts to compliment her. He notices when she gets her hair done, and even her husband doesn't notice, right? Like, he, he notices things about her. She, he's funny. He's thoughtful. He comments on her latest Instagram pic. He find, she begins to find herself looking forward to interacting with him. Innocent, nothing, nothing wrong, nothing sinful at this point. She's not thinking through any act that would dishonor her marriage. She just needs somebody to make her feel better about herself. One day they, they both work late. And as they're both working late, he begins to open up about his marriage, how frustrated he is in his marriage, and how things aren't working and what's wrong with his wife. And she's there for him. And she encourages him in the midst of this. They start to connect on a deeper level. He one day confesses to her, I think I made a mistake. I married the wrong person. In fact, I really think I should have married somebody more like you. It's flattering. It feels good. She's receiving some attention and affirmation. One day, he accidentally walks by her and brushes up against her arm. And she starts to wonder, was it an accident? Is he interested in me? Could there be something better out there for me? She begins to think, what if he's the one? What if I married the wrong person? What if I should have been with him all along? Her emotions are getting out of control. She realizes that her feelings are wrong. Shouldn't be feeling this way about somebody that I'm not married to. But she thinks, man, it feels so right. I've been needing this in my life. This is starting to make me happy. She begins to miss him when, she, when he's not around. And she thinks he's what's missing. He would make me happy. She goes and she just confides in her best friend. Here's the way I feel about this. And her best friend, loving and there for her, has her back, says, you need to do whatever makes you happy. Follow your heart. Is this what happened in this story? We don't know. We could flip that story completely around. It could be the guy and not the woman, right? This isn't just about a woman's failure. This, is just, this story happens to be about a woman, so we use the female hypothetical, but it works 100% in reverse as well. Is this what happened in this story? Maybe, maybe not, but we know that this is what happens. 
This is the pattern many times of an affair of adultery. It doesn't mean that everybody starts out with evil intentions. It doesn't mean that everybody starts out denying and disobedient to God, saying, I'm going to do whatever I want. Most of the time, it doesn't work that way. Most of the time, we start out with good intentions. Most of the time, we start out desiring to honor God and honor our marriage. And yet, the enemy's good at what he does. All of us are capable of falling into this pattern and letting this happen. Step by step, she ends up in a place where she's barely dressed and humiliated in front of the world. Everything has fallen apart. Why? Because sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobeying God and eventual pain to us. In our culture, we approach the world with a relativistic worldview. What is a relativistic worldview? Relativistic worldview says there is no objective truth. It says that we base things on what is right to us. What makes me happy? What is my truth? Whew, I hate that phrase. I'm just going to tell you, man, why don't, why don't you live your truth? How about let's live the truth? I don't mean to sound harsh. I don't mean to sound judgmental. If, if any of you have ever said that or posted it, I am not coming at you. I don't know anybody in this room who said that. So, so this is not like a judgment against somebody here. Uh, it's a judgment against the culture we live in that is full of lies. Jesus doesn't say, go live your truth, baby girl. He says, go and leave your life of sin I've got something better. I've got something deeper. I've got something more fulfilling for you. What you're doing is only bringing emptiness, only bringing brokenness. It is not giving you what it promises to provide, but I will. I will. You see, without a belief in absolute truth, truth is simply defined by whatever makes me happy, by whatever feels right. The problem with that is that so many of us think happiness and holiness are at odds. We think happiness and holiness are opposites. And so what do we choose? Happiness. Happiness is immediate. Happiness, I can tell what makes me happy. Sometimes I may not even know, is this thing making me holy? I'm not getting instantaneous gratification. Ultimately, that's what this is about. We live in an instantaneous gratification society. And so we choose what makes us happy. And we can point at the world and point at all the sin in the culture. But this is us, people. It's me. We all deal with this. We all surrender and give in to sin at times. We all choose that which is far, far less powerful in our lives. Because we think that happiness and holiness are opposed to each other. we got to choose one or the other. I can be happy or I can be holy. I'd rather be happy and unholy than holy and miserable. Can I just tell you, we serve a good God Amen. who calls us to holiness. He's not calling us to holiness because he wants us to be miserable. He's not calling us to his standard because he wants our life to be empty. He's a good dad. He's a good God. But when the bottom line is my happiness, then, or my, then happiness becomes the standard by which I judge my actions. If all I'm living for is to be happy, if all culture is teaching me is I need to be happy, then happiness is the ultimate standard that I have to measure up to. If these things aren't making me happy, then they're obviously not 
the right things. Matthew 7 tells us about our loving Father. He says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Why? Because you don't want your kids to be miserable. I mean, maybe sometimes there might be a moment here or there where you would like to inflict some misery on your child. But most of the time, generally speaking, we want our kids to be happy, don't we? In theory. In theory. (laughs) (laughs) We know how to give good gifts, even though we're broken, even though we're fallen, even though we're evil. How much more will your perfect righteous, whole, complete, loving, heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask him. He doesn't want you to be miserable. He does want you to be holy. What does that mean? That means misery is not a byproduct of holiness. Misery is not the result of holiness. That's just a lie from the enemy. He paints holiness as miserable because he knows how deeply satisfying it is if you'll actually experience it. So he's got to do everything he can to keep you from walking in it because he's terrified of you tasting and seeing how good God's way really is. Max Licato has an illustration that I think is so applicable here. He talks about putting a fish on the beach. How many of you like to go to the beach? You're those salt life people, right? You just you need a trip to the beach. It rained yesterday. I just I just need to go to the beach. I just need some salt therapy, right? Like it's like we, we got those beach people. So there's some of us that man, happiness equals the beach. Man, there's it's impossible not to be happy when you're on the beach. So so we find this depressed fish and we decide, hey, how are we gonna make this fish happy? Let's put them on the beach. And the beach doesn't begin to provide happiness to our hypothetical fish. So what else does he need? What other things would make him happy? Well, let's, let's give him a pile of cash. Man, let, let, let's make him rich, right? Well, if the beach isn't happiness, then money's going to make him happy, right? Well, well, the money doesn't make him happy, so how else can we make him happy? Well, let's throw him a party. Let, 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 let's get all of his little fishy friends, his best-looking fishy friends, and we'll gather and we'll play some music, and they'll bob their heads, and they'll just have a little fish blast party on the beach. That's going to make him happy. Well, he's still empty after this. So, so what else can we do? Well, let's get him a Playboy, no, a, a Playfish magazine, right? And, and he can look at all these beautiful fish, and he's going to find satisfaction in what he looks at as this image of this blowfish and this goldfish and baby got bass. Uh, and that was supposed to sound like baby got back, not like something else, just to clarify. Um, but ultimately, our fish is never going to be happy on the beach, right? You know this. There's no happiness for a fish on the beach. Why? Because the fish wasn't created for the beach. And what you need to understand is the things of this world, I don't care how much you get and which ones we provide, the enemy can keep on giving and giving and giving. There's no ultimate true happiness in them because you weren't designed for this place. You were designed for somewhere else. Why are they empty? 
It's not because somebody else has more. That's the lie that, man, if I could just get what they have, if I could just get his bank account, her job, his spouse, her popularity, their fame, their followers, if I could just have what they have, then I'd be happy. It's a lie. You won't. Because you weren't designed for happiness here you were designed for something better something bigger something greater c.s lewis puts it this way he says we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea we are far too easily pleased I don't think there's a quote that better summarizes our problem than that. Why are we unhappy? We are not unhappy because God, because our desires are too strong. We're unhappy because our desires are too weak. Because we're far too willing to settle for what the enemy offers when God's offer of something so much greater is there constantly available to us. If we would increase our desires, increase our hunger, begin to channel them in a higher direction, we would begin to find happiness, true happiness, true joy. The reality is no new car, no new boat, no vacation, no boyfriend, no new situation, no new piece of furniture, no painkiller, no drug, no bottle, no experience is going to provide that happiness you so desperately long for. Not for long. It's fleeting. It's a moment. You need to understand this. Holiness is not mutually exclusive with happiness. In fact, holiness is the pathway to true happiness and joy. Holiness does not make you unhappy. It actually brings ultimate happiness. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes holiness doesn't feel happy. Right? Sin's fun for a season. Sometimes holiness is not. But it's building true meaning, true impact, true fulfillment in your life. Psalm 1611 puts it this way, talking about God. It says, you will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is the fullness of joy. What's the fullness of joy? True happiness. Lasting happiness. Sustainable happiness. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. The enemy offers pleasure for a moment. My God offers pleasure forever. What are we going to choose? What are we going to walk in? What do you do when you know what's right, but you keep on doing what's wrong? What do you do when you know God has something better, but you can't let go of this thing over here that brings that fleeting momentary happiness. I've shared with you on this before, but when I was in Bible college, I was in a very unhealthy, un-God-honoring dating relationship. I was going to be a pastor, going to pursue ministry, and yet walking in immorality in a relationship. And I wanted to get it right. But I didn't want to end the relationship. 
So I'd stay with her, and we'd talk, and we'd say, hey, we're not going to do this again. And we wouldn't for a while, a month, two months. We'd be good. And then we'd give in again. Be the right mix of moment, temptation, whatever. And we'd give in, and we'd say, hey, we're not going to do this again. And we did this cycle for far longer than I would like to admit. As I'm in classes teaching me how to reach people for Jesus. Pursuing a call of God on my life. Stuck between two worlds. What am I going to choose? Am I going to choose holiness or temporary happiness? And again and again, I made the wrong choice. Maybe you're at that place right now. You want to please God. You want to do what's right. You want to walk in his best. But there's just this one thing over here. There's this one habit, this one relationship, this one thing. I mean, it, 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 it gets me through the day. Man, it just helps. I don't need it all the time, but sometimes I just need that thing. To, it just calms my nerves. Right? We have that thing we keep going back to. The Bible says it's like a dog returning to its vomit. It's a powerful picture. You ever seen a dog go lick up some feet, throw up? It's a good time where you're like, you know what? You're staying outside tonight, pup. Right? You ain't licking me with that tongue. Uh, that's where we draw the line. Why do we keep returning to our vomit? Because we don't realize how disgusting it really is. We don't realize how dis- damaging it truly is. If we'd really get a revelation of how broken and how empty it is, we wouldn't keep on touching it. Maybe for you it's not sexual sin. Maybe it's overeating. Maybe it's painkillers. Maybe it's drinking. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe for you it's something completely different. Insert thing here. It's images on the internet that you just can't get away from. Maybe it's something all unique to yourself that nobody knows about, and you think, man, I'm the only one who deals with this. You're not. But that may be what the enemy is telling you right now. Sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobeying God and eventual pain to yourself. We're almost done. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. What do you do when you can't get away? It says, God is faithful I serve a God who is faithful. My God is faithful. He will not. Flat out won't, can't happen, won't happen, will never happen. Will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There's none of us in here who are incapable of resisting sin. Only because of the Holy Spirit inside of us. If you're not a Christian, then that statement does not apply to you. So maybe I shouldn't say none of us in here. There are no Christian in here. There's no person who is saved, who's received salvation, who has the Holy Spirit living in you, who is incapable of resisting temptation. Now, that doesn't mean you may not need to get help. does not mean you may not need to go through some, some process. doesn't mean you can always do it on your own. You may have to bring that out. You may have to confide in some people. You may be a process. But every single one of us, there is a path out from where you are to where God wants you to be. That's a promise of Scripture. He will not, flat out, does not let there be any temptation that you can't overcome. What do you got to do? Start looking for that way out. Start pursuing that way out. I heard a guy say years and years and years ago, you got to get the place where you hate your sin more than you love your sin. 
When you hate your sin more than you love your sin, you're going to start looking for the way out rather than the way in. Our problem is so often we still love our sin. We love that temporary fleeting happiness. And so we're looking for a way in when God's providing a way out. There's lots of gamers out there these days, lots of video game people. We play in Call of Duty or Fortnite or Anthem or all these new modern games. I grew up in a different era, a holier era of video games. If we're being honest, I grew up on Doug, Dig Dug and Tecmo Bowl and the original Super Mario Brothers. And, and when I was real young, you would, we didn't have this on a console, but if you went to an arcade, some of you don't know what that is. It was a magical place. Um, if you went to an arcade, you could play Asteroids. Asteroids was a little older than me, but, but man, my, I was raised, I had an older brother who's 12 years older than me, a sister who's 10 years older. So they exposed me to some of the things of the, the 70s and early 80s. I got to play Asteroids, and Asteroids was this game with amazing graphics, graphics that can't even compare it today. It had a, a spaceship that was literally a triangle. This, this was it, okay? Uh, and there were rocks, asteroids, that were coming for your ship to blow you up, and your job was to blow them up before you got blowed up. And sometimes you would get in a position where you couldn't get out of, and if you got in a position you couldn't get out of, there was a magical button called hyperspace, and if you would hit that magical hyperspace button, then your, your, your triangle would disappear on the screen and reappear somewhere else. Get you out of that sticky situation. And the reality is, as a Christian, we don't have a hyperspace button, but we do have a hyper grace button. God will always provide a way out. You just got to look for it. You got to find it. You might have to pray for it. But it is always there, no matter the temptation. Every temptation in that perspective is now an invitation to deeper dependence on Jesus. Every temptation you suffer, if you begin to use it as something that drives you to look for something God has for you, becomes an invitation to depend on Christ. And this is how you get out. Because when the enemy realizes that every time he brings temptation at you, that you just start getting closer and closer to Jesus, he's going to stop bringing temptation at you. Maybe not forever. He's going to wait for a time. He thinks you're weak and bring it back, but he's going to take it a little easier on you because he realizes this is not producing the results in your life that I want it to. And so if you will receive that temptation instead of fearing it and say, you know what, this is okay. This is the time to pray. This is the time to read. This is the time to get in God's word. Man, I'm not going to walk in shame. I'm not going to walk in condemnation. I'm going to choose God's best. You're going to begin to see that hyper grace take root in your life. Jesus gives her an urgency. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not, man, when you get a new job situation or you get transferred or she gets transferred or they're not there anymore. Go now. Not when you get old enough. Not when, when you get in a new life situation. Not when you get married, not when you have kids, go now and leave your life of sin. There's an urgency. Jesus is full of hope. He's full of belief that she has a new life waiting for her, that he's invited her into something so much deeper and so much greater because he knows that he has. For me, when I was in college, took a day where I was out on a retreat with a student ministry called Light Zone. And Light Zone retreat for us as leaders required us to spend an hour with God. And I hadn't spent an hour with God in a very long time. As I went out and got in the woods and I took my Bible, I remember very well, I read from Joel chapter 2. 
And I read from Joel chapter 2, and God broke me. And I repented, and I don't mean like that half-hearted repentance where it's like, God, I know I shouldn't have done this, and I'm sorry, but, man, it felt pretty good, and I'm glad that it happened, but let's not have it happen again. I'm talking about full revelation, God, of my sin. I am sorry. God, forgive me for what I have done. And he set me free. And I walked away from that and didn't go back to it. I believe that freedom is available for you today, whatever that looks like in your life. See, we get to the place where it's no longer the fear of what's bad. It's longing for what is good. That's what God ultimately has for you. You're not afraid of, of stepping out of his best. You're excited to walk in his best. You're excited to see what greater thing he has for you, what new level he's taking to you. Remember this, every temptation is an invitation to depend on Jesus. How do you do it? You got to repent. Repent to return to the penthouse told you before that repentance is, is returning to the highest place. Man, that we don't come back in at the, the lowest place, at the lowest level with God, but he actually returns us to the highest place, and that's true, but there's another picture in that word, repent. Repentance is turning to God's best. It's choosing, I'm no longer settling for something down here. I'm no longer being far too easily pleased. But God, you've got something greater, and I'm choosing your best. I'm returning to your best. Usually we think of repentance messages as geared to the world. But Jesus came to call his people to repent. Like the Bible says that judgment starts in the house of God. In other words, Man, God's more worried about our sin than he's worried about their sin. We got to deal with us before we can ever be used as an agent of light and hope to the world. So maybe you're here today and you're in a place that feels hopeless, a place that feels dark, a place that feels empty. I need you to know that God has invited repentance. God has invited you to return to the highest place. God has invited you to experience his best because happiness is not the enemy of holiness. Happiness is a byproduct of holiness. And if we will choose holiness, we will always ultimately discover happiness. Amen? Would you pray with me, church?